Hi everyone, welcome back to Roll for Enterprise. As ever this week, I'm here with Zach and Mike, and we want to talk through the news of the day. There hasn't actually been that much news this week. I think we're already going into silly season for the summer, but we wanted to touch on some follow-ups from last week. We spent some time talking about the Apple Silicon introduction at WWDC, and to absolutely no one's surprise, as soon as the developer kits were in the wild, we started seeing some leaked benchmarks. And it makes some pretty interesting reading. It's almost on a par with uh, current MacBook Air, which is amazing considering the benchmarks themselves are x86 benchmarks, not ARM benchmarks. So they're running through emulation. So once we get the native code for these things, they're going to absolutely fly. Is that a guarantee? Because I'm, I mean, I'm not so familiar with uh, with these benchmarks, but it's it's always kind of uh, interesting when they say, um, yeah, you know, this is through emulation, so it's only going to get faster. But w- w- will it really? I mean, I'm I'm not so familiar with it. I mean, uh, you know, there's there, there's still a lot of doubts in in um, when I when I look at all these articles. Um, but hey, maybe it will be faster. Maybe it won't. But I, I guess it's it's coming up on par, right? That's what the real numbers show. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The absolute worst case that we've seen here is that it'll be on a level with the MacBook Air, and that's with a two-year-old ARM CPU because it's the A12 Z, or Z uh, for you guys, I guess. And it's it's almost up there with an i3. So that, that's amazing in its own right for pre-release hardware. But again, emulation normally adds some uh, some toll to the system. And so the the hope is that when they get rid of the emulation and we have native code, it would be even faster than that. Yeah, and I I bet also Apple had something to do here with the release because it just shows, I mean, I I think this is a bit of posturing on their side to show that their decision is right and and come out early with it in case people are are hesitant on uh, on buying some of the new specs, right? So they're going to drive this... this cycle towards the end of the re- year of uh, of everybody wanting a new product based on 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 their silicone. That's what I think is is ultimately happening. Uh, is it going to be faster? Yeah, okay. Uh, it looks like it will, uh, which is quite interesting because it seems like um, Intel has lost its mojo to to some extent. Exactly what we spoke about um, last episode, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the main driver for this is for the last few model cycles. People have said that it's been Intel that's been holding Apple back from releasing the sorts of machines, the sorts of specs that they wanted. And for a company like Apple, that's famously full of control freaks. They, they couldn't let that stand. It's not surprising to me that they're managing the transition well. They've had, as we said last week, they've had a couple of transitions already from 68K to PowerPC and then from PowerPC to Intel. So they've got some institutional knowledge. They, they know what works, what doesn't. I'm not surprised that they're managing this one well. And they've managed also to avoid the classic problem for americans you may not know the term osborning yourself back in the dawn of personal computers there was this personal computer in the uk the osborne and the mark one was amazing and wonderful and at the launch the ceo the creator of this device mr osborne uh, said oh but wait for the mark ii it's going to be even better it's going to be so amazing you're going to think that the mark one is absolutely nothing and so everyone was like, oh, well, I'm not going to buy the Mark One. I'm just going to wait for the Mark II. And the company ran out of money and the Mark II never came out. So <laughs> you always want to avoid that type of scenario, talking up your future products at the expense of what you've currently got on the shelf. So yeah, no, that was just a, a quick note since we did talk about what the results might be. I think Apple's uh, Apple's cash doesn't make them worry, though, about, um, you know, cannibalizing current sales for future. And uh, and I, I don't know how sour that Intel relationship also is, but certainly Apple's proven that, man, it, if they can pivot platform, 
uh, and they can do it quite well, uh, probably better than any other company. But then again, they have the the resources and the people to to do it better than anybody else, which is is clear how they've su- surpassed uh, Intel in, in chip design for for amazingly to most of us. The question here is is what kind of domino effect will this have? You know, what what kind of effect will it have um, across industries and, and other chip makers and the impact on Intel. Um, by the way, Dominic, you sound much better today, so I can tell you must be back in your home office. I am indeed back in my home studio with my big microphone, and this experience has been good because while I was on the road, the AirPods Pro, they worked, but a few listeners did point out that my audio sounded different. And so now I know all that money I spent on my fancy audio setup was well spent, so that's good. <laughs> Always good to hear. Always good to spend money on gadgets, was that? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it was just interesting to see these benchmarks leak since one of the question marks had been, you know, how effective will Apple be straight out of the gate? And it looks like the answer is pretty dang effective. The other news this week has been, again, a follow-up from a topic we've touched on before on the podcast since uh, these low-code, no-code platforms. Amazon brought out their own variant of that, something called Honeycode, which as many people have pointed out is perhaps not the best possible name that you could come up with. On the other hand, the design of the product itself looks like it's roughly what we're talking about. It's basically a spreadsheet, but more so. You can do more interesting things with this tool that behaves very much like a spreadsheet and exposes your data in that way. But what I found interesting was some of the limitations that it exposed, which are also pitfalls of most of these low-code and no-code programs, is that it's easy to get something done quickly and get a little demo running. But you quickly run into difficulties and complexity that make it actually harder than if you'd taken the time to use, uh, in inverted commas, real programming language uh, right up front. And Corey Quinn, a famous AWS critic, has also published some criticism of it, uh, lacks granular access permissions. Uh, no narrative about why it integrates with a whole bunch of different account models and no proper docs, no proper third-party sources, all sorts of things missing that you'd expect from a typical AWS product. It just does not seem fully baked. Did you guys get that feeling as well? To to, to some extent. I mean, I, I don't know if they're feeling uh, pressure to come out with like a no-code platform. So this is their their answer. I mean, when when I look at the cloud players, I mean, I, I, I classify them into, in, into three buckets, right? And I think like... It, GCP, like they're 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 they seem desperate. AWS is is arrogant, and and Microsoft seems to be firing on all cannons, right? So when you talk low code, no code, you always think of of Microsoft first. But maybe maybe it is what you say, um, uh, Dominic. Like, okay, someone's going to start developing. Maybe this is your um, you know your your minimal viable product, and then you get real developers involved. And and maybe Amazon saw that slipping away where things are starting to go the Microsoft route. And then if you're going to go more serious, well, part of the base is already in Microsoft. So so maybe they saw it as eroding and rushed it rushed it to, to, to production because it, it it does seem a little a little fast, like not rightly planned. Like it, it, it's rushed, right? And and if you're gonna get really the people who are gonna do, you know, no code, I mean, this is this is not like I don't know how an audience ends up on on Honeycode other than a lazy programmer, right? And and I don't know if that's really the audience that they should be attracting. So it's a bit tough. It's it's a bit tough to see what what Amazon's thinking here. Yeah, another product from Amazon, right? I mean, I think I've seen so many of these over the last 12, 18 months. It's it's been getting a bit confusing. You're gonna need a literally a big Webster's dictionary, which in today's age nobody uses right books, but uh you know, you need something to go through all this. And it just shows me that I, I feel as though you're right. Amazon is um, 
I don't know that they're as desperate as GCP right now, but they're, you know, I think they're trying to be relevant everywhere. And, you know, Microsoft seems to be, you know, um, you know, beating to the punch in a lot of scenarios, whether it's 5G at the edge or whatever else. But as far as this goes, I, I again, I feel as though with, with Amazon, there is so much coming out. that h- How do you keep up? It's becoming complex. Yeah, I've been wondering how long to go until the Amazon product list swallows its own tail and they release an Amazon product to tell you about Amazon products and help keep track of them. <laughs> Exactly. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This and this is a problem if you think about it. So, what's the whole idea of cloud simplicity? This is this is supposed to be simple, but how simple is it now? I mean, where where are we going with this? And I I think there's I think there's you know in my opinion a problem here. So I think customers need to evaluate that and um, you know what does that mean for customers? You know, we talked about the business. We've talked about that a few weeks ago. Well, now if you have all these different products. Now, how do they interoperate? Do they really work? And, you know, and, and what's next? I, I'm always amazed when I go to like the, the Amazon feature page on, on what's in AWS and it, it just keeps growing and it's such an impressive list, you know, and, and I think, you know, to a lot of startups, it might be, um, you know, there is becoming a feature to, to Amazon, but they can do it so quick. Is this maybe just a like, hey, let's do as much as we can. We'll fail fast. But then the stuff that sticks, it'll really drive momentum into AWS. And, it, you know, is that there? Is that what they're trying to do? Because to me, it feels it feels to some extent that's what they're trying to do. But I'm not I'm not really I'm not really sure because Microsoft seems so much more calculating. Right. That I, I don't think we're going to see like a half baked uh, product come out of, 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 of Azure anytime soon. Yeah, it's kind of a cultural difference between the two. It goes back to, if you remember the famous old essay about open source, the cathedral and the bazaar. And so the Amazon approach in this case would be the open source bazaar, and they just have a million billion different products. And you know, if one takes off good, and at Amazon scale, even the products that aren't really making it are still probably viable because they get even the crumbs are quite nourishing off a table that size. And meanwhile, Microsoft has taken the the cathedral approach to very planned. And that's why they're so good at working with enterprises, because they can align their planning to their customers planning in a way that is antithetical to Amazon's kind of chaotic approach. Plenty of enterprises find that a turnoff because there's just so much it's so confusing and that changes so fast that they can't make the sort of long term strategic plans that they like to make around Amazon. And I think what we're seeing is a true DevOps cloud. This is parallel to a DevOps environment. A lot of different tools, you know, whether they're, you know, freeware or not, there's just so many out there. And I, I think this is who they are at their core. They're, they're a DevOps player. Uh, we can talk about GCP along the lines of an a, uh, AI or, or ML type, you know, um, a cloud. Um, but again, is that is that good or bad? Is that what they want to be? And, and I think they have to figure that out. But in my eyes, this is, you know, this is great. This is probably a DevOps paradise. If you're a developer, this might be a paradise, all these different choices, thousands of different items in the marketplace. But is that what businesses want? I go back to, you know, uh, you know, cloud being a symptom of IT not doing it right. I go back to cloud is there for simplification. And I think it's good, but it uh, depends who you're talking to. I, I agree. But from an enterprise perspective, I mean, what I see Honeycode as is like, you know, sometimes I wonder what these cloud players, are they after my data or do they want me to build my apps on, on their platform? And, and maybe this is like, hey, if we get the data, then they'll build the apps. And this is, this is totally getting the data, right? Because the audience, it's, the audience it's going to is not really the developers, right? And, and that's the tough part. So I think it's like, let's get the data, then the apps will come, and then we'll get 
you know, the real compute that we want to sell. I, I, that, that, that's the feeling I get, right? Where I think Microsoft automatically has that because of the enterprise customers that are evolving, right? Everybody's using a Microsoft product somewhere else, right? Now, this is the audience they have today predominantly. I think that's what I should have said. You're right. They're trying to reach a different audience, but I don't know that their strategic plan is really, we talk about, oh, they, they're on top of their, their stuff, but are they really? I mean, you get to a big, you get to a certain size, right? Where you're just a big company. And what we've seen, I've seen this out of companies, um, you know, like Cisco and, and other large companies where you just start throwing products out there to see what sticks or not to see what sticks, but you know, Hey, we, Oh, we, we missed this pivot. So let's, let's create a few products real quick and, and, and tie it in. I'm not saying that AWS is necessarily there yet, but they're pretty dang close. So I, I think you're right. They are DevOps today and they're trying to reach this other audience. Uh, I look at Azure and the acquisition they made a couple months ago in the 5G world, right from right from underneath uh, AWS. So, I mean, it seems to me like they're a little bit slow to move and maybe they're trying to figure out what they want. And let's be honest, you know, it comes down to the people that are uh, that are working at AWS. You know, do they understand you know, this new path they're trying to go down. But I think that's it. I think it depends on who you talk to and you can't serve everyone. That was the mistake that Microsoft made and that they have done a very good job of recovering from by focusing on their core competency, which is selling to the enterprise. Amazon, I don't think, have fully embraced that culture in the same way. And Honeycode is a prime example. There's stuff in here that simply doesn't make sense for the audience that they say Honeycode is for. Just looking at Jeff Barr's blog post, there's stuff in there that's, hey, look, how simple this is there's a text computed by a formula and the formula is if error round bracket square bracket assignee close square brackets uh, why am i looking at any of this <laughs> you know you're 30 40 characters in before you get to the actual field name which is first name and then there's some more characters after that, none of which are explained. And if you're a programmer, or even if you're fairly in-depth with Excel, all of this does make sense. I'm not saying it doesn't. There are very good reasons why it's like this. But why choose that as your example? That's, that's not an example that's going to draw anyone in who's not already deep into that world. And so that's sort of mistake that you can make if you try to go outside of your comfort zone to sell against your, your own internal culture. But that's a good segue to some of the other topics that we wanted to talk about today, because Amazon are not the only ones who are doing this. They're the other two big vendors, Google and Microsoft, who have their own take on the same type of problem. So I think I mentioned last time we talked about this topic, if you're in a Google Sheets, you now have the ability in a cell to go and query a database. And again, perhaps not something that just anyone will be doing, but it's a way to make your sheets super powerful and to build real workflow applications on top of that. Not applications in the sense of an app that runs on your phone, but in the sense of a business application of technology to a problem that they're trying to solve. And that's much more aligned to who Google's user is. They are much more focused on Google's users like to play with data and go into Google Analytics and slice and dice the data in different ways. And here are a few more things that you can do with that. And in the same way, Microsoft with their Excel, the granddaddy of all of these spreadsheets until you go back to VisiCalc, is there with uh, flexible dynamic arrays and a special data type for stocks that's evolving. So I think that's the, the culture showing through that these two, Google and Microsoft, understand their users in a way that, at least going by Honeycode, Amazon does not. Some of their other Amazon products are much better aligned to the Amazon user and the types of requests that person has. But that's a framework that I think is useful to look at these new products through to try and determine what's going to be successful and what's not. You, you know, who would have thought that here we are in 2020 and, and some of these spreadsheet applications are are evolving. It's it's um and I said it's like we have like the spreadsheet wars, you know, which is which is fascinating to me. Is it 
and I, and I don't know if like the the Amazon announcement of, of stock history or 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 the Sheets announcement is driven out of fear of them becoming irrelevant, uh, or if they're picking up on the date of what users are trying to do, and then just incorporating them as features um, to, to stay ahead of one another. Um, obviously, I believe there's maybe some fear of becoming irrelevant in each of these, but clearly you can see that you know it's it's really evolving uh, from a from um, a sheets and an Excel side. And you have Airtable and these standalone applications, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and maybe there's also fear of Airtable, right? Because I, I don't know where, where this is all going. You know, I always joked around that some companies, if Excel stopped working, would, would stop shipping product. And, and I think that's still true today. But um, it, it's interesting to see where this is, this is all going to end up because I don't know, you know, if someone told me this is where the innovation is going to come, I, I, I would have never, never thought that somebody would be, would be saying we need more functions in Excel. Uh, but it's interesting to see, right, and, and how that plays into Power BI. And maybe maybe this is a fear of being cannibalized by some other product, right? The air tables and and so on and so forth. So it's 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 interesting what's what's happening here in the market. I tend to think they're they're chasing Microsoft a little bit. Uh, so you know, two weeks ago they announced that AWS announces they're going to use Slack internally everywhere, and then a part of this announcement says, oh, Slack is uh, going to be. Uh, you know, using our, you know, our honey code and they're going to, you know, integrate it with their platform. So it's almost like, uh, in my opinion, are they, are they trying to chase teams? Do they see something here and they're quietly going that way? Uh, you look at what uh, Google did a couple weeks ago with their meetings um, and what they're trying to do with their integrations just makes me wonder if the bigger picture is really just trying to, trying to chase Microsoft, who's uh, seems to be a step ahead. Well, and there you have, again, the, the cultural question, whether the meeting user, whether any of these vendors understand the meeting user and what they want. That's, that's a whole other conversation. You, you know, culturally, like, let's, let's face it culturally, like everybody who's used these products and used these products well have been technology geeks, right? Yeah. And in the time of COVID, like we're all home, we're all working. And now you have marketing people, you have salespeople all being forced to use these tools. And I think what's starting to happen is everybody is starting to realize that, you know, this might work for tech tech geeks, but it's not working for everybody else. And because it's not working for everybody else, they're being forced to adapt their products. And and maybe that's what we're seeing happen, right? What's happening in Sheets, what's happening with all these other project products, as you mentioned, Zach, right? So I, I think they're they're really um, starting to realize that maybe they haven't been going after the right audience, or maybe they don't realize who the true users that that they need for growth are. So that, that that's how I see it uh, kind of happening. Oh, I agree. So as it happens, I was part of a conversation earlier this week with a bunch of analysts and some other vendors and industry observers, let's say, about the types of changes that we've seen, the coronavirus and lockdowns and work from home, uh, having the kind of effects and transformations that uh, those changes have caused. And the interesting thing that we all agreed on was there's been a massive acceleration in DevOps and Agile and iterative approaches. The quote of the session was, I think, less planning and more learning. And that is going to stick with me for a while. So the enterprise approach of planning, the the five-year plans, uh, as they're sometimes parodied, simply broke down in the face of this massive unexpected event that could not be fitted into any plan. Whereas the companies that had culturally adopted deeply, not just cosmetically, the iterative approach of DevOps and Agile, try something on a small scale, and if it works, go do the next thing. They were able to weather the storm much better. And we've seen that also in the sorts of 
companies that have prospered that have even uh, succeeded and grown in this time versus the ones that have just come to a complete halt because they've been able to uh, to work more effectively, small teams, uh, more dynamic, agile processes, fewer bottlenecks, less need for approvals and complex chains of approvals before anything could be done. Have you seen this type of thing in your world as well? Because this was a very EMEA-focused conversation, I should add. I'm not sure whether the US might have had different results. I think it's also happening here. I think it, you know, you know, I, I think there's a real difference between the big monolithic companies, as I like to call them, where there's uh, lots of red tape and and so on. They, they they struggle to adapt, but I also believe it's it's the level of digitization in an organization on how well they can adapt to the changes. So the ones that have digitized to a substantial amount, they're they're making it happen, right? And the others have not, right? I I don't know how how you see it, Zach, because I think there there is a bit of a different perspective here. I see the same thing. I think it's you know, not just EMEA uh, here as well. Um, I know personally where where I'm uh, working, you know, a lot of customers are having these same discussions, talking about um, you know the the impact on their business now during COVID and how they need to accelerate some of this. So I see the same thing. Okay, good to know. That's it's a worldwide phenomenon, and I was fairly sure it was. These are not regional specific phenomena, but the experience with COVID has been different enough, and the timescales have been different enough. I thought it was worth double checking that before we went too deep down a rabbit hole. But yeah, it's, uh, the interesting thing to me has also been looking at uh, at my customer base is precisely the sorts of things that people do. So some big projects have been stalled because those typically need more people to get involved, more roles, more teams, more functions, and lots of approvals and all of those sorts of things, rigid processes. But what's prospered instead have been the little projects that can be completed quickly, that can deliver a rapid ROI, and that can prove themselves and they prove themselves through a minimum viable approach and that they can then iterate and build on and make something bigger and better. So the teams that have been able to do that and the technologies that enable that uh, have actually done well during this uh, this period of lockdown. And it's going to be interesting to me sort of at the industry level once we come out of this, whether that will persist and how much of that will have reshaped the market. I don't think we go back. I think, you know, COVID-19 is probably the most significant driver of digital transformation we've seen. So I think now that... Uh, you know, this enterprise has realized what happened. I, I don't, I, I think this going forward, this is going to be a different expectation. Um, you know, organizations need to ensure business continuity and support remote working. And I think that, uh, I think this is an interesting time. I, I think, you know, back to, to Dominic's point there, I think companies that do like small sprints and, okay, we, we achieve this, let's, let's move on to the next one. That, that That's easy when you're remote, right? I think what gets hard when you're remote is if you're starting something new, and you need to get people, or yeah, you know, I, I'm saying this because we, we you think about it in, in the old way where you get people into a room and you start brainstorming and you, you build your plan and it's okay, you're, you're going to tackle this piece, that piece, and, and so on and so forth. I think that's hard, right, when you're, when you're all remote. And, and that's, I think, where the, the, where the real struggle is. And how you build that, how you, how you get those people together, I mean, you can do so much on video, you can do so much on, on, on calls, but I think there's, there's a bit of that downtime when you're together in a room or together somewhere where, you know, these, these great ideas come up. And I think it's, it's hard to see in the times of COVID, big projects, big items kind of taking off and starting. And that's where I think uh, the challenge is 
especially, you know, you can be agile, you can do everything you need to do, but it's like, how do you start with the big initiatives? And I think that's where the differentiation is going to come in, not now, but maybe six, nine, 12 months down the road when companies are like, what's the next big thing? Because even everything that stopped, I think people are starting to come back, at least I am, uh, to my teams and saying, hey guys, I think we need to think of this as it's business as usual. And, and we shouldn't stop something because it's COVID and because we're all working from home. I think now's the time to put the foot on the accelerator and let's, let's go for it. But it isn't so easy with everything, I would say. Yeah, it's useful to think of this in three time phases. So the first phase was emergency lockdown. Let's just do whatever we can to keep things going. And a risk there is that people may have cut corners and may have signed themselves up for some technical debt that will have to be paid off at some point. But what's the alternative? You have to you know, keep the company running. I mean, do you, do you believe like to achieve this that companies will start reorganizing or will, or maybe some have already reorganized. I mean, do you think companies are starting to reorganize how they shape their organizations because of this? Uh, That's interesting. I I don't know if you got anything out of that, Dominic. That's exactly what we were talking about on this other call. The medium and the long term are going to be characterized by that shift. So the medium term, which again, at least in Europe is what most organizations are now entering into, is that realization that, okay, this isn't just a moment. This is going to last, at least for a while, it's going to last long enough that we need to you have a bit more of a plan for it. We now have a bit more of an understanding of the parameters of this thing. And so organizations are starting to do that to adopt uh, these methodologies in a little bit more of a formal way. They've had the results of the first experiments, the first iterations to look back on and move forwards from. And the long term is going to be precisely that transformation to see how much of this uh, gets adopted and how much gets dropped with a sigh of relief as soon as people can go back to an office. I know personally, I'm in the same boat. I, I really miss being able to brainstorm with my colleagues around a whiteboard and i hope that we get to do that safely sometime soon but uh, right now we we are using different tools different approaches different techniques and since we're already a remote team it's maybe easier for us to do that because we already had at least some of those reflexes in place some of those systems in place my personal hope for the industry as a whole is that we take much more of a hybrid approach in the future that we are able to get together in person when we need to but that we don't all commute to physical locations if we don't have to because it turns out it's quite useful uh, being at home and being able to do more parenting do some shopping run errands and not waste that time sitting in a traffic jam or in a crowded train or what have you and then go into the office when we need to when we can have that social interaction that ideation process to use a hundred dollar word around the, the physical whiteboard because it's true that we haven't yet found a proper replacement for that that works remotely yeah and i i don't know that we will i, I like i think it's all it's all fine now. Everybody's like uh, on the remote work bandwagon, but I think it'll, you know, when we're five, 10 years down the road, I think it's all cyclical, right? And people will start putting people together. Now, if it's for a short period of time, like maybe one week retreats, maybe, maybe retreats become the new thing, but I, I don't, I don't see it completely going away, right? Because of exactly what you said, Dominic, the, the ideation, I, I think, um, People need great minds to be together, and you can only do so much uh, remotely in, in this case. But I do believe that organizations will reorganize around the idea of how they make it better, because so far it's always been concepts, 
but now reality has struck and I think there will have to be some changes in, in this respect. And Zach and I have also seen being on the road uh, for the last little while, the difference as it makes having a properly set up space to work in versus someone who maybe wasn't so used to this, wasn't expecting it and had to scramble to set up at the kitchen table and worried about what might be happening in the background of the Zoom call, uh, someone coming out of the shower or whatever. And it was funny, actually, yesterday, two different UK news networks had clips that were broadcast where the interviewees' kids uh, came and joined in the interview. The BBC one especially, I'll drop the link in the show notes for people who haven't seen it, uh, was wonderful because the, the interviewer also got in a conversation with a little girl about her unicorn picture and where it should go. And it, it was, you know, on the one hand, it was super cute. But on the other hand, it was also a reminder, you know, people have lives going on outside of the view of the camera uh, normally. And the only thing that's different right now is that we get a little bit more of a view into our colleagues and, uh, you know, TV anchors' lives. So are you guys saying that we're going to look at, we're going to see an acceleration in, in product development, modernization techniques? Is that is that what you guys are thinking that this will develop or are you thinking that that's not going to, to happen and we're going to have to get back in the office I, for the for the listeners i'm just i want to clarify that you're right we've been a little bit all over the place so my take and then i'll let you give yours mike uh is again if you look at that three three stage approach so we went through the emergency moment a whole bunch of big projects just hit the skids or just stopped dead in the water and a few little projects were able to continue and showcased a different way even in organizations that had historically been reluctant to work that way. Now we're in the medium term, we're in the adoption phase where people are trying to figure out, okay, what can we learn from those little projects that did succeed? How can we adopt that more widely? And what do we do about the big projects? Do we try to move them forward in some different way? Do we muddle through as best we can in this weird remote situation? What do we do about that? And the long term is going to be interesting to see what sticks and what doesn't. And I don't think that's at all clear yet, at least to me. Yeah. And I, I think, Zach, it's, it's, to me, it's two stages. I think, um, you know, as we continue, I think organizations are going to have to reorganize the, the way they're working. I, I don't think, I think the silos are going to break between departments. Um, I mean, let's face it. Um, whether that's ops and applications, whether that's uh, product management and marketing, whether it's, I, I think you're going to have a meld of uh, companies going from silos to potentially products. And, and I think that's going to start happening at, at a faster rate, at least companies who haven't done it yet, because those will succeed when they're remote. Uh, and then the other thing is like, I think as we get to maybe two years, three years down the road and the new, pro I, I think, there's going to, I think people are going to realize that they've lost something going remote. And I think then there'll be a bit of a push to get people to meet face to face again. If that takes one year, 18 months, two years, three years, whatever, I think it's, it's going to come eventually. Right. Uh, and, and we can bet on it. I'll, I'll take the over under on two years. If, uh, if you want to bet a, a nice lunch on it. Oh, that'd be good. If only because that would mean we could all be together in one place <laughs> to eat together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sign of the time, sign of the so times. So it sounds like we will see a modernization happen right now. And eventually when we get back to the office, it'll be a different going back. It sounds like these techniques will be in place, but maybe that'll be accelerated with ideas as we go back to the office is what it sounds like. So there's going to be progress and then there'll be uh, a new way going forward once this uh, 
hopefully is behind us. Yeah, COVID has a full function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in enterprise IT, let's face it, I mean, whether you call it DevOps or not, I think we're going to move to more of a DevOps model, whether you like it or not, right? I mean, you might call it that, you might not, but it's just going to automatically happen because of the, the situation that everybody's in. Well, perhaps this is where somebody like AWS is hoping that their no-code, low-code solutions will help, right? So I think this all really ties into maybe what we're seeing there and, and um, if it'll stick. And, and potentially, the products need to set the the people free. It's kind of like what I said early on, right? The companies that digitized and had this digitalization initiative and and had all these tools up, um, they have accelerated, right? So they have, um, you know, they were easy to go remote and now they're looking at the next step. And then there's companies who are still struggling to figure out, you know, how they do it. It's it's not working right. Things are clunky. Those will fall behind. So, So you'll see a differentiation and I think it'll get accelerated uh, you know, uh, six or 12 months, uh, down the road. So that, that, that's how I see it kind of evolving. Agreed. And I think the big thing that's missing and which may come out of this is a proper handbook of best practices for how to do this. So I was talking about this, uh, while ago already to a guy in the banking industry and he'd been trying to do this DevOps cultural transformation in his own organization and he was getting very frustrated. He said, you know, when we did the IT, ITIL ITSM transformation, you went and got the books and you took them off the shelf and you read them and you took the certification and you went to the courses and you could hire any number of consultants to help you with the process. Some of them useful, some of them not. For Agile, there's nothing like that. Sure, yeah, there's a lot about the programming, but the culture, people just wave their hands and say, well, it's culture, isn't it? You have to do it it's soft skills and there's no best practice no guidance no 101 level how-to document and maybe that's the thing that will emerge the the great covid novel <laughs> be it the agile handbook everybody's doing agile in their own way everybody's doing agile in their own way that's 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 what i see everywhere i go that's a hopeful thing one thing that is certain is everything that is moving quickly right now um we're gonna have a lot of change in the next 12 months probably more change than we've ever seen as far as solutions and and the cloud companies and technology companies and and how they shift and the solutions they go to market with so it'll be exciting solutions might drive how we're how we're going to be organized instead of the other way around. Technological determinism. Interesting. Maybe we can get into that in the next episode. In a great chat as ever. Uh, Look in the show notes for the links to the various bits and pieces that we've discussed. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend and we'll talk next week. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Dominic, welcome back home. And uh, we're excited because your mic sounds great. Good to know. (laughs) That's it. Thanks. Thanks, all. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.